Happy New Year to you. It's good to uh, be back in circulation. Up and about, I uh, had an operation uh, the first week in November, and I just sat around for eight weeks, and it was terrible. Uh, uh, I thought, oh, it'll be a nice break. I can read. I can read lots of stuff, and uh, but I had no mental energy even to do that. It's funny, isn't it? It's like if there's something major wrong, all of your head goes to that thing. And so I just sat and sat, probably watched a bit too much television. And, uh, and uh, despite everything that Daphne said, she was a perfect nurse. <laughs> well done. So uh, I go back in four months, and the surgeon will uh, do the other one. So you have to do it all over again, that. So well done. And uh, unless, unless God intervenes, of course, and that would be a lot easier. Now, if you're going to have a hip or knee operation, I'm not going to tell you anything about it at all, because uh, I don't want to discourage you, any of you. But uh, it's quite a uh, traumatic thing. Um, quite often, I listen to the message that is preached here, because it goes up on the. On the machine, I don't know all the wonderful ways it happens this day, but I just get my telephone out and on my mobile, I know what to do now, and I can hear the message. And so I listened to Florence's message, and I thought she did a fantastic job. And if you weren't here or you can't remember, it was living in the power of the Holy Spirit. And if we're going to really uh, serve and live for God in the way that he truly wants us to, uh, it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. You can't live this Christian life uh, with your natural resources. It doesn't work because we have been so marred by sin and so crippled by sin and death has entered into us to live for him in the way that he requires. He has to enter into us again and we have to step into this life, this life of faith, and everything that God has made available to us. So this is a sequel uh, to Florence's message. I'm continuing it. Now usually, uh, uh, John, is, is this true, John, that sequels are not usually as good as the originals, yeah. are they? No, John, John knows a lot about the film industry and that, so, uh, but I'm, I'm not trying to compete or even do something better. I'm hoping it's gonna just continue uh, the fantastic message that she started last week. She spoke about living in the power and the life of the Holy Spirit. And in uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, we're encouraged that if we're going to live by the power of the Holy Spirit, there are two ways that we can do it. We can do it in the love of God, or without the love of God. And God says, I want you to live this life, this power of the Spirit, in the love of God. He says, actually, in there, I will show you a, a more excellent way to live by the Spirit. And it's that you live it in the love of God. So I want to turn you to that passage. Turn you to Corinthians, uh, chapter 12. 1 Corinthians, chapter 12. And so I can key it right into what Florence was preaching about. I'm going to start in chapter 12 and verse 27 and read through into 13. It follows through really, although it's chopped up into 
chapters. There's no need for a break there. Read through uh, into 13 up to verse 7. 29 then, 1 Corinthians, sorry, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 27. Now you, you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. And in the church, God has appointed, first of all, the prophets, uh, sorry, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, those speaking in different kinds of tongues. And he asks the question, are all apostles? Well, the very way he poses it, no, we're not all called to a ministry of the (laughs) apostle. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Do all work miracles? No, not all of us. Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? That is, give messages in tongues. Do all interpret these messages? No. But eagerly desire, he says, the greater gifts. We from other teaching that we all have gifts. God has not said, I'm going to gift you and, and not you. We share the gifts amongst us. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If you speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a sounding gong and a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. And if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. And it describes this love to us. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast. It is not proud, it is not rude, it's not self-seeking, it's not easily angered, it keeps no records of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, and it always perseveres. Just one line, it says that love never fails. That is, the love of God, the love of God never fails. It appears from this passage, the Holy Spirit comes and gives his gifts as he gives them throughout the church. He empowers us by his spirit to operate in these gifts. And it seems that we can do it in the love of God or not. And just because we don't operate always in the love of God, it doesn't mean that the gifts don't operate. But he says the best way that we can operate these gifts, the perfect way, is that we do it in the love of God. Paul is not saying we should deliver these gifts in a loving way. He's not saying that. He said we should deliver these gifts in the love of God. To deliver these gifts with all the love that you can muster is not good enough. They must be delivered in the love of God. What's this love like? How do you know it's the love of God and not my love? I want to say something about the love of God that Paul describes here and you're going to say Oh, I see now. It's not simply my love. It is the love of God. Let me describe 
this love that Paul describes. And you tell me if it's your love or the love of God. You tell me. This love is always patient. It's always kind. It's always protective. It's always trusting. It's always hopeful. And it's always persevering. Is that your love? No. Well, we go, sometimes, and I'm really good on some of these, but on other ones, I fail somewhat. And it says, this love that you're to deliver these or, or work in these gifts with, it never envies. It never boasts. It's never proud. It's never rude. It's never self-seeking. It's never easily angered. And it never keeps any records of wrongs. You go, you make your point, Phil. That's not natural love. That is the love of God. So you can see how I'm continuing the message. Yes, be full of the gifts that God gives you. Exercise these gifts. Don't hold back. You all have varying gifts of the Spirit. But what's important and what's preferential to God is we exercise them in the love of God. The love that he describes here. You say, okay, Phil, take that. How do I get it? How do I get this thing? I'll tell you something. Everything that God has made available to you is available to you. He doesn't make you have it. He doesn't put it into you. He simply makes it available to you. And by faith, we step into what he's made available. That means from day one, you could live and minister in the love of God. Because you, by faith, have stepped into it. You understood that what you had to do was step into the love of God. And by faith, lay hold of it. The truth is that everything, everything in the kingdom of God has been made available to you. Uh, Peter says, we have everything we need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. It is ours now. It's yours. You don't have to earn it or work up into it or strive to get it. You simply, by faith, knowing what God has made available to you, step into it and by faith, embrace it. That's how you got saved. You embraced the wonderful gift of salvation. That's how you exercise the gifts of the Spirit that God has brought you into. You, by faith, lay hold of them. You say, well, one day I might give a message in tongues if the Holy Spirit moves upon me. No, no, no. Step out into it. I would that you all prophesy. You have to lay hold of it by faith and step into it. And his love has been poured out. And by faith, you step into it, the love of God. You don't earn it or work for it. It is so different from your love. I've described it here. You step into it. And by faith, you embrace it. What does this love look like? There is no fear when you've stepped into the love of God. So if you're fearful in loving, you're loving with your own love. 
Because the perfect love of God drives out all fear. When you're operating and you've stepped into the love of God, you are 100% certain that what God has asked you to do, he will provide everything you need. He is not a God who says, I want you to do something for me, and then not make absolute provision. Because to do the things of God, we cannot do it in the natural. We need the supernatural abundance and provision of God to do it. And I'll tell you the third thing, because often he invites us to do things that are very difficult, that require the love of God, that require the provision of God. And he says, when it gets rocky... There is a danger that the enemy will come in and try and crowd you out with fear or a doubt or an unbelief. And he says, listen, I'll never leave you or forsake you or abandon you. And as you function in the love of God, perfect love drives out fear. You have a certain assurance of the provision of God, be it grace or money, or strength, or intelligence, whatever it is you need. And he says, listen, no matter how dark it gets, I will never leave you. And I will never, ever step away from you. Praise be to God. That is the power of the love of God. The love of God is pure and perfect. It has to be. Because everything about God is pure and perfect. There is no shadow of turning. There is no speck of anything in it. It's just pure. His grace is pure. His mercy is pure. His salvation is pure. And his love is perfect and pure. We love, it's part of our character, isn't it? In the same way we have patience, and we have hope, and we have kindness, and we have love. But they're all marred by sin. Because we're marred by sin, because death and sin entered into us. And what was made so perfect in the sight of God became so marred so even your patience and your love and your kindness is marred just a simple example it runs out doesn't it you say listen my patience is going to run out absolutely certain it will always run out your love will run out you've just gone too far now your kindness will run out. Your, your generosity will run out. But when it's his in you, it's perfect. It never, never, never runs out. So it, these things are the characteristics of love. Love is not a characteristic of God. No, it's not. God is love. 100% pure love. 
When you meet God, you meet love. One day Jesus will put his arms around you and love personified will hold you in his arms. Wow. There are some exciting things to look forward to. When we leave this planet, I tell you something else. So God is love. When you say something like, God loves me, you say, perfect love loves me. And you step into the love of God. You step into what you could say is the most powerful atmosphere of love that you could step into. I used to sing a song. Love is not a feeling, it's an act of our will. Do you remember that song John used to sing? And um, it's true. But love is always felt. Come on. You'd never have got married if it wasn't felt. You'd never have survived with your children if you didn't feel it. We wouldn't relate to each other if we didn't feel it. There is feeling in love. And God wants us to also not only know about his love and understand his love and believe his love and have faith in his love, but to experience his love. Somebody once said, imagine if you got married and uh, you told your wife, my dear, I love you, I will always love you until the day I die. And I'm going to write it now on a piece of paper and give it to you. And if you ever doubt it for one moment, just get the piece of paper out and read it and you'll know that I love you. I can see my wife now screwing up the piece of paper <laughs> and not throwing it in the bin but throwing it back at me and saying, no, 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 that's not good enough. I want to feel your love, know your love, experience your love, hear your love. And you know with God, so do I. If this God who is so loving, he just told me that he did, it's not good enough. I want to know it. I want to feel it. I want to experience it. I want everything in my being to know the love of God. Paul says, I want you to know the love of God that passes all understanding. I want you to know it. You can't know it without feeling it. He says, grasp hold of it that you might be the people that I want you to be. I'm going to go a little bit later to John chapter uh, 13. John chapter 13 is a record, well, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, five chapters the Bible's given to this. It's a record of the last Passover meal Jesus had with his disciples, or more exactly, his apostles. And what I suggest to you is, when you get home, maybe, for some homework this week, read those five chapters, 13 to 17. You should always read them as one, because basically it is the evening where they met for the last time. Within 24 hours, Jesus will have been crucified after this event, and he will have died, and he would have been put into the tomb. 
So he gathers them together again, maybe for the third or fourth time for this Passover meal. And he shows them, it says in there, the full extent of his love. That's why we should read it. Because in those chapters, we understand or we listen to or hear about the full extent of his love. Now, it's no accident that in this very last meeting with them that probably lasted five or six hours from the evening meal to midnight when they went out into the garden to, to sing and to be arrested, in these hours together, he wanted to impart to them some truths that they would definitely need to hold on to. It is almost like my parting words to you are this. Remember this that I'm telling you. This is really important, these words now that I share with you this night. So we're going to look at some of the things that he shared with them in that evening. But before I go there, I want to say something about the love of God. We will let God down. We do our best. But we will let God down. And when we do this, because we love him, we feel bad about ourselves, don't we? I mean, if you let anyone down who you love, it is awful. Sometimes if there's people, just people that you don't love, and we'll deal with this in a, in a minute, you don't feel so awful. But I've remembered occasions when I've let my wife down. I feel, I feel awful. I feel want to die. It's awful. It's awful because you want to be loyal and you want to keep expressing the love as much as you can. And when you disappoint the person but yourself, you feel bad about it. When we let God down, we feel bad. Now stop it. It doesn't help. This whole thing, this loving relationship with God, what's more important is not our love for God, it is important. But what is so vastly more important is his love for you. You see, sometimes, as Christians, we move ourselves into the centre of the picture. It's all about us. Our happiness, our ministry, our church, what God's doing for me, how I'm getting on in the world, where I am. We can lose sight of the fact it isn't about you. It's about him and it's about his love for you you will fail God in your love but he will never fail you praise be to God he will never ever ever fail you thank be to God it's not you hanging on to God that makes it work it's God hanging on to you. Because sometimes you're like a child. Remember when a child wants to run off and do its thing, and mum, dad, they grab their arm. Ah, scream, shout. That's we are sometimes with God. And God says, oh, shush. You think he would let us go at those times for one minute? He never lets us go. He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never, ever leave you. You've got to put up with me now. For eternity. 
Thank be to God. Thank be to God. Right, let's dive into this chapter then, or these um, five chapters. I'm only going to preach on the next five chapters this morning, so you're all right on that one. I'm just going to pick out four things it says in these chapters about the love of God. So we can have a... Uh, John 13, let's have a go. It says in verse 1, It was just before the Passover feast when Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to his Father. Now, they don't know he's not going to be around tomorrow. The disciples, or the apostles rather, they don't know this, but Jesus knows it. And so he wants to impart to them some truths that will reassure them in the days to come. They didn't get it that night, all that he was saying. It was just another bit of a dialogue from Jesus. Because once he's gone, they understand the importance of his words. Having loved them, or sorry, having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Now, if you just read this, you read about the washing of the feet, and you can think, like I did for many years, he's showing them the full extent of his love in that he washed their feet. No, no, no. The whole five chapters will show us the full extent of his love, not just the washing of his feet. The washing of his feet is just a small thing that he starts with. A thing that we need to understand and understand what it means. It goes on to say that evening meal was being served and the devil had already come and tempted Judas of Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Jesus. So there's a bit of an atmosphere in the room. Can you imagine it? Quite tense. Okay, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. No pressure, Jesus. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. So, this is what he does. This is the first demonstration of God's love for you. So he got up from the meal and he took off his outer clothes and he wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Why did he do it? Now, I'm not going to get into great theological discourse here. He did it because it needed to be done. That's it. When you arrive somewhere at a house, to go into that house and to have an evening together, at every meal, part of what they did was the washing of the feet. There was no one here to do it. It wasn't going to happen. And because it needed to get be done, Jesus did it. He did it. His desire because of his great love for them, was to serve them. He had the love of God in his heart, and the love of God pushed him to a place, it didn't take much pushing, where he wanted to serve his brothers and his sisters. It says a little bit later in here, I tell you the truth, no, no, no servant is greater than his master. Sorry, that his master. That slow down, Philip. 
He says, I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a master greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now, some denominations have built into their worship the washing of feet. I don't think that's the point. See, I don't want you to wash my feet. My feet don't need washing. Okay, and your feet probably don't need washing. I presume you wash them. It isn't something that is needed. But there is something in your life that you need. Yes? And yours. And yours. And yours. And yours. And what God has done, he has placed us into families. Natural families. Christian families. He has put friends around us that these people around us meet our need. That's it. Needs, some needs are met through the body of Christ. Some needs are met by your brothers and sisters. Some are just by your colleagues at work. All different needs are met around you. See, if Jesus was here, he would meet your need because he loves you. But he's not. So he places you in groups of people and through these groups of people, they meet your need. He meets your every need through those he places around you. See, that's why you mustn't isolate yourself from your church or your family or your friends because God can't find anyone to work through to meet your need. That's why we should be in loving families and loving bodies and and have friends and good colleagues at work and have good reputations so God can channel his love through them to meet needs. And in that way that God meets our every need, be it the washing of our feet or a million other things, so he uses you to meet the needs of others. Isn't that wonderful? So he wasn't, I don't believe, saying, I think you will all go off and have a, a ritual of washing feet. He said, I think on a day-by-day basis, you should allow me to flow through you to meet the needs of all my family, of all my children. In chapter 15 and 16, he says another interesting thing here, to show and express his love. He said, you didn't choose me, I chose you. You didn't choose me, I chose you. Now, a lot of us are with the impression that we chose Jesus. Because it was presented to us in a way, will you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior? And you chose him. But before you chose him, he chose you. Now, we could get into a great theological discourse here, and I'm not going to do that. But if you want to talk to me afterwards about it, I can do it. I think we choose, then he chooses, then we choose. Anyway, never mind about that, okay. We'll move on here. He chose you. In the marriage ceremony, it's not in it now, but years and years ago, apparently, some of you might remember this, not when you got married, but I mean it was quite a while ago, the woman would say something like, I choose this man above all other men to be my husband. Do you remember that, anyone? No, no, no. And the man would say, I choose this woman above all other women to be my wife. And so, in the choosing, is what we call exclusive. I choose this woman, and I have no interest 
in any other woman. I choose this woman. And the woman would say, oh no, I choose this man, and I'm not interested in any other man. You can understand. That was there in the original, or in older um, marriage vows. It would be frowned upon now as not politically correct. Okay. God's love is not exclusive, but it's inclusive. So he chose me, and he chose you, and he chose you, and you, and you. And the love he shows you is the same love he shows Esther and me. He doesn't love me more than you. He cannot love one more than another, or one less than another, because God's love is perfect. And so the only thing he can present to you is perfect love. He loves us all inclusively with a perfect love and there isn't anything you can do to get God to love you more or there isn't anything terrible that you might do that God would love you any less now it takes a bit of thinking to get our head around that and revelation but it's a reality because in the world's love we love some more than others because of the way they are towards us but God says that's not how it works. Our love is pure and perfect. He chose each one of us here this morning. I'll give you the water, but I ain't got any myself, so. Okay. He did choose you, He chose you for Himself. He chose you that he might demonstrate his love to you. Isn't that wonderful? He chose you that he might pour his favour upon you. That he might embrace you. And you might live in his love. In chapter 14 and 18... He promises that he'll never leave us. It says this, I will not leave you as orphans. He says, I will come to you. It's what God said to Joshua in Deuteronomy 31 and 6. He says, don't be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God will never leave you or forsake you. And that's reiterated in Hebrews for us as well in 13 and 5. I sometimes have a little chuckle to myself when... People pray that God will be with them. Whether they're going on a journey. Uh, yeah, not that I ever need it, but it seems the congregation are dying around me. Okay. <laughs> People pray God be with us. God can't not be with you. It's impossible. Having, having loved you and set his love upon you, he's not going anywhere. Because he's omnipresent and could be at all places at once, and he's set his love upon you, there isn't anything that's going to pull him away from you. So never pray, God, please be with us, because it only shows you don't understand. And he wants you to understand. Now, if you want to pray, pray, God, I thank you that you're with me, and you'll always be with me, and you'll never leave me, and you'll never desert me, and I give you thanks for that. But to thought, think for one minute, he would even turn away from you when he doesn't have to, he won't. Every second when I was conceived, 
from the conception in my mother's womb, he has had his eyes upon me, and his gaze has never come off me once. Now looking back, sometimes I wish it had, that I could go and do some, a long time ago now, you understand, some, some things that he wouldn't approve of, I could do it in the dark, where he would not be looking, but he was with me, walking with me, looking at me all the time, trying to say, Phil, don't do this. This is painful for you. Don't do this. His eyes will never come off you. They can't. They're fixed upon you. And from the moment you received him as your personal saviour, they definitely weren't going to come off you then. As he disciples you every day of your life. The fourth one I've got here is in chapter 15 and verse 8. He says, the Father will give you whatever you ask for to enable you to bear fruit. Whatever God has called you to do, whatever it is, you have to ask him, that's all, and he'll give it to you. Whatever, whatever. Now, you can't ask him for anything. It says there, specifically, if you're going to bear fruit in your life, he will supply the need so you can bear fruit. It says in Matthew 6 and 8, your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, if you need it and didn't ask, you'll still give it. You go, I didn't ask. God, God knew that. He knew. He knew what you needed to walk this life, to live for him. I share a little testimony about God providing for us even before we ask him. Um, two weeks before we got married, uh, not we got married, Luke got married in Scotland. Um, that was two weeks before my operation. So we came up to London to stay with Jonathan and uh, be with Joel. And then we were going to Scotland for the wedding, uh, my son Luke's wedding, and then I was coming back for the operation. That's, for the, that's the sequence of events. So coming up to London, Daphne and I thought we would visit uh, Kelvin and Lorraine. Some of you remember Kelvin and Lorraine? Okay, now Kelvin uh, is a school teacher and Lorraine is a nurse. Anyway, we went down, we had a nice meal with them, we some time with them, and we were talking about my pending operation. And Lorraine says, I want to give you these before you go. It was 100 cocodamol tablets. Now, I've never been to dinner with anyone and left with 100 <laughs> tablets of any form in my life, ever. So this is a one-off in 69 years being on this planet. So we just took these and definitely put them in their bag and I said, you just get on with life, don't you think, you know, well, I don't know what it's all about. When I had the operation, I was in hospital just 24 hours because they like to get you out nice and quick, don't they? And... Uh, they, they um, dispatched me. That's not the right word, they... Discharged. It might be more of a dispatch. Anyway. And, and the... Because you're going to be in a lot of pain, aren't you? I mean, quite a... Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, yeah. Yeah, you'll look crap. Okay. And they gave me paracetamol. Daphne <laughs> <laughs> says... They don't even touch my headache, let alone what's going on here. Anyway, that night, because uh, 
It was pretty bad, okay, and I don't want to overdo it, just in case you're going to have the operation. Yeah. But I, I went to bed that night, and of course, at the joint, it's all going like this, isn't it? It's trying to heal itself like mad. And I'm saying, Dad, I can't cope with this. And she never said, oh, you big wimp, shut up and go to sleep. <laughs> she was very compassionate and loving. <laughs> and so you rushed to the bedside and... Um, anyway, it was, uh, it was horrendous. And I'm here, and I'm saying, because we pray, we pray good in pain, don't we? Yeah, it's easy. Oh, oh, Lord. I mean, I've never been so earnest in my prayers than when I'm, I'm suffering. Oh, Lord, come on, do something here. I need you now more than any other time. You know, and all this sort of stuff. Anyway, we rang for an ambulance, and they spoke to us and said, no, we're not, is he dying? No, no, we're not coming. <laughs> I'll, I'll be happy when we're out of this time of austerity and there's abundance of money flowing again in our public services. Anyway, so uh, we ended up with a Red Cross ambulance coming eventually after about two hours. And they helped me, you know, to get to the hospital. As soon as I walk in there, this woman looks at me and she gets this thing with um, morphine. Yeah. Yeah, and she shoots it into my mouth. I thought, praise God! It's <laughs> <laughs> a lovely, sweet taste it was. And then I sits down in the chair, and she says, oh, a doctor will come and see you. So about an hour later, he comes, a lovely guy, I mean, and he looks at the woman, he says, oh, it looks fine to me. He says, what did they give you when you left off the hospital? I said, paracetamol. He says, what? He says, they should have given you something like, now, I don't know much about medicines, Tramadol or Cocodamol or something. And I thought, I've got 100 Cocodamol. Did you tell him? I said to him, I've got 100 Cocodamol. He said, I'll go straight home now and take them. Now, apparently, a doctor shouldn't say you should just go home and take pills that some friend has given you. I understand that, okay. He said, go home and take them straight away and then get some more for the doctor. He said, I've quite got me. You understand? He knew two weeks before I was even operated on that I would cry out to him for help. And if I only had my wits about me, and my dear wife had her wits about her, bless her. Okay. No, didn't think about it. We, didn't, didn't. We, would have, we would have cottoned on. God made provision two weeks ago. Two weeks before it happened. Isn't God good? Now you say, oh, well, that's just coincidence. Oh, no, it isn't. I haven't got a God of coincidence. I worship a God of love. Amen. A God who cares about me. A God who knows where I'm going. A God who knows what's going to happen to me. A God who can make provision before me two weeks before I even get there and give me enough pills to send me to sleep for about a week. <laughs> <laughs> so I went home and I took a few of these cocodamols. And I had some sleep that night. And I took Cocodamos for the next six weeks. And I didn't take anything stronger. And it did the trick. I didn't go and get anything stronger. I didn't need anything. See, God, God was my chemist. You say, oh, why didn't he heal you? I don't know. And I wish he had. And I wish he'd heal this one. Because if he doesn't, I've got to go through that one again. But that's all right with me. Because I know how much he loves me. And for some reason, in the purposes of God, I've got to go through this. We go through some tough stuff. 
God didn't save you to whip you out of every difficult situation. And you said this last week. You did, Florence. I remember listening because I listened very carefully to your sermon. He doesn't whip us out of problems, but he makes ample provision as he takes us through them. So every step of the way you can say, praise you, Lord. Praise you, Lord. This is murder, but I praise you, Lord, because you made provision for me. And sometimes we need to stop and think, in what way has he provided? You see, if I had stopped for a minute and gone for those cocodamogs, I could have slept five hours earlier than I did. I didn't need a trip to the hospital in the middle of the night. He had made provision. But I wasn't quite on the ball that night. What we have looked at is a life of faith, trusting in God's provision and care for every day of our lives. He will look after you every day. His love for you will never, never waver. The bedrock of the Christian life is faith, hope and love. And the greatest of these is love. Not our love, his love for us. His faith, his hope poured into our hearts. He gives us his faith. He gives us his love. He he causes us to dwell within it. I'm going to finish with this. Karl Barth. He was a great theologian, a Swiss man, lived between 1886 and 1969. He wrote about five volumes. I mean, God blessed him with a sharp, sharp mind. Just a wonderful theologian. And his work on Romans, and I haven't read it, is apparently, it's, it's wonderful. It's absolutely brilliant. And one year, a student came to him in his university and said, he said, of all that you know, is there, can you just give me one, one phrase or one sentence that, that just encapsulates everything? I mean, it's a bit much, wasn't it, to ask the poor man who wrote five volumes to just bring it down to one verse. That is almost an impossible thing. But his response was marvellous. He said, when I was a little boy in Sunday school... My mother used to sing a song to me, and it went like this, Jesus loves me. I can't think so. Jesus loves me. This is Finish. I want to.